We have been studying Ephesians 2 to start out 2019. If you've been with us and around St. Peter's, you know this. And I just want to say personally, it's been a really refreshing experience for my faith and um, yeah, to be regrounded on the heartbeat of what we believe, the gospel. It has been a really helpful and um, enriching way to start the year spiritually for me. And just to be reminded that the good news um, of salvation has come in Jesus Christ. That it's, re- that it's real and it's alive and it's powerful. And it's the message that we stake our life on as Christians. Paul says, if this is not true, we're to be pitied among all people. That Christ died and that uh, he rose again and that he's alive and reigns with the Father now. This is the, the core of our faith. And so today we're going to round out this passage, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, by looking at verse 10. But um, here's a quick review first. We've looked at salvation from three angles thus far. We've looked at it from, in three different ways. The first, was saved by, or, the first was saved from death. The second was saved by grace through faith, and that it's all a gift. The third, last week, is that we were saved into loving union with Jesus Christ, into the eternal relationship of love of the Father and the Son. And then now we're at the question, okay, but what's it all for? We're saved from death, yes, but what's the flip side? What are we supposed to do? If you're a Christian, the question is, uh, what what is my salvation for today and tomorrow and for all the days of my life until I die in this earth? You, you know, yes, I know, you may have heard that it's for eternal life with Christ and the hereafter, after I die. But what about eternal life today? What about eternal life right now? What's it for? What's salvation for? And if you're not a Christian, it's an important aspect of salvation to grasp too. What are we saved for? Because it answers the question, what is a life following Jesus Christ meant to be about? What's the outcome what are Christians meant to be all about? What, are they, what are their, should their lives look like following Jesus? So that's what we'll be looking at today. Now in verse 10, Paul is speaking to those who have been saved by grace through faith. They have been made alive together with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly, in the heavenly realms. So what then are we saved for? We're going to go to Ephesians 2. 8 to 10, and focus, then focus in on verse 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As we unpack this verse today, Here's the main idea. So we, we've talked about that as we dwell in loving union with God, we're given things to do. We're given a purpose. And it's meant, to, the purpose is to walk in the good works of God. So, so this is the main idea. We're saved for a purpose. We're saved for a purpose. To walk in the good works of God. Now, we have to unpack this idea of good works today. That's our main task. And we'll do it in, th- in three ways. Talk about first, the foundation of of our good works. Second, the definition. What are the good works? If this is our purpose as Christians, uh, what does it mean? And third, we need a gospel understanding of good works. How are they explicitly tied to the gospel of grace through faith that we've been looking at in this passage? 
But first, the foundation. What is the foundation of good, good works? Well, uh, Paul transitions us into this conversation about good works by summing up everything he said thus far, this entire passage from verses 1 through, one through 9, all the good works we've heard in one little phrase, and in one little image, really, to talk about how we are made alive in Christ. We are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship. Now, we, we see Paul all through Ephesians reaching and stretching for language to encapsulate these spiritual realities and truths that he's trying to describe. It's a really hard thing to do. It's, it's hard for our minds to also grasp what all of this means. So, so graciously, it's, it's nice that he brings it into focus here with an image in verse 10. We are God's workmanship. Now, the exact word Paul uses here in the Greek is poema. We are God's poema, is what he says. Now, it doesn't take a Greek scholar or linguist, I don't think, to figure out what English word comes from the Greek word poema. Can anyone guess? Anyone? What'd you say? Ham? It is not ham. Any other guesses? Poem. Thank you. It's poem. Can you say poema with me? Poema. Thank you. Yeah, poema. It's, it's very close to poem, not ham. We are God's poem, that's what Paul's saying. We are his song that he wrote out of love. In Christ, we are God's ultimate creation of beauty, of complexity, with, with purpose and with meaning. It's the crescendo of what Paul has been saying this whole passage. Remember, remember, you were dead following the sinful desires of, of your flesh, lost in your misdirected passions. That's where you started. But God made you alive in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And, seat, and he seated with you with Christ in the heavenly places. And what does all of this amount to? That you, that, that we, all of us, seated with him on the throne, are God's masterpiece, his poem, his, his grand symphony, in which he takes utter delight. And this word poema, it also carries the connotation of creation. In Romans, Paul uses the word to describe all of God's creation, the physical creation around us. Yet here he uses it to identify the new creation that salvation brings. It's like in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. That those saved by God's grace through faith are part of this whole new creation. God created at the first, and then he is creating all things anew in Christ. So if you're in Christ, you've been given a new heart. You're actually a new creation. You're a poem coming from the very heart of God. Now, as I reflected on this artistic image Paul gives us, I couldn't help but considering the unique beauty that we encounter when we hear a songwriter or a poet speak life into their creation, into their words. I used to live in Nashville, Tennessee for four years. I don't know if many of you know that, but I did, and I love to frequent this little cafe there called the Bluebird Cafe. Um, it's a songwriter's venue, so only songwriters are allowed to play there. And they sit in around in the middle of this little cafe and sit around and play their songs. And they would often be popular songs you'd hear on the radio, right? Sung by George Strait or Keith Urban or whoever it may be, these, uh, these kind of blockbuster names. But I always found it particularly special to see the artists themselves who actually wrote these songs uh, in direct relationship with their art. 
not mediated by the blockbuster singer or band, but to see the songs come alive in a particular way, in a, in a, in a very important way, um, when they're coming from the lips of the one who penned them, when they're coming from the lips of the one who gave them their meaning in the first place. And it can only really happen, right, when it's the author who is in relationship with the art, that when the author can cast the shape and the arc of the song that it was originally tended to have. Think about this with God. We are God's poem, his song, his workmanship. We're crafted with purpose and with direction. You see this connection when the Holy Spirit breathes life into us, when the breath of God fills us by this Spirit, God enables us to fulfill what we were intended to be in the same way that a songwriter can uniquely speak life into her song. No one else can get it quite right. Now, this is what led the second century theologian Irenaeus to conclude that the glory of God is what makes human beings fully, truly alive. In other words, he's saying it's by encountering God's glory, now even more being brought into his glory, into the saving work of Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit, into that intimate union with God that we looked at last week that makes us fully alive, that makes us what we were intended to be when we're in that relationship with our Creator. Nothing else will. Nothing else can. Because we are God's workmanship. We're not our own workmanship. We're not anyone else's. We are God's workmanship. And only in God can our intended beauty and purpose fully live. There's one more consequence of this truth that's worth making explicit, that sin has alienated us from and separated us from. The prince of the power of the air in verse 2, this character in Scripture named Satan, who Jesus in the Gospels tells us is a real spiritual entity who opposes God, his voice says something different. He says, no, you are not God's workmanship. You're not created out of love. You can't trust what God says about you. So you need to discover your own purpose. Otherwise, your life is meaningless, meaninglessness, meaningless. You need to figure it out. Do you see what this does? It puts the burden of your worth of answering the question, what is the point of my life after all? It puts it all on your own shoulders, on the self, which is a burden that we are never meant to have to bear. It's too big. But the good news here in Ephesians 2 verse 10 is that you've been given a purpose an identity, and it's a gift. And God goes so far as to promise to carve out in advance a path for you, ways in which you can live out this purpose. And we'll get to that in a minute. But it's not hidden. It's not a secret that you have to discover. God has given it to us and invited us to walk into this purpose of life and meaning with him. So then what does it look like to live out being God's workmanship, to be his song in and for the world? Well, it looks like walking with Jesus in the good works that he's prepared for us, as verse 10 goes on to say. It's walking in the works of God that he has in mind, that he has in mind for you and for me. But if this is our purpose, what are the good works? Like what immediately comes to your mind when you hear the phrase good works? I imagine it's all sorts of different caricatures. Um, and another question, are they unique from other good deeds or good works that we see anyone in the world doing? If so, how? 
Well, think through Paul's logic with me. Let's come to this together. We are God's workmanship, which means, again, we are a new creation in Christ. And because we have been born again by the Spirit, we are a new creation, and the good works Jesus Christ has prepared for us are works that only we can do because we are made alive in Christ, because the Spirit is living in us. So they're new creation works that are made possible by the Holy Spirit in us. So we can't actually do good works without the Holy Spirit living in us because there are works done by the Spirit to the glory of the Father. Good works are simply God's works. They're the works that he does. So they can't be done without God. It's like a caterpillar trying to fly. We can't do the sort of good works Paul is here speaking of until we die to ourselves and are made into a new creation by the Holy Spirit. Now, again, we've said this before, but I'm not saying those who are non-Christians are incapable of doing good things. That's not the point. What Paul is addressing here is is unique from just a, a standard good deed because they're the actions of God happening through us and they're directed for God's glory. They're singing back to the Creator. And they stand out. They look different, like a butterfly would in a caterpillar colony. But what do they look like? Well, in the immediate context of Ephesians 2, Paul gives us an example. He goes on to discuss the good work of of learning to live the Christian life with people who are different than us. In this chapter, he's, he's writing to the church in Ephesus, and it's a mixed congregation ethnically of Jews and Gentiles, and they're having to learn to live together and accept that in Christ, the racial barrier between them is destroyed that their first identity is in Christ and that they are now one. This is a a really important example, so much so that we're going to unpack it together next week fully. Um, But in brief, it tells us that a good work is embracing those unlike us. But what else does it look like? I think Paul surely has in mind the fruit of the Spirit he describes for us in Galatians 5, that as we walk in step with the Spirit, there's certain things that our lives will reflect. He says, if the Spirit is living in you, things like love and joy and peace and and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control will be evident in your life. The good works of God, then, are going to look like these things. They're going to smell like this sort of fruit when when we do them and when we see them, because it's the Spirit doing them within us. It's a good work to approach conflict with humility, to go to a brother or a sister when there's something on your conscience, maybe a brother or a sister who's sitting in the row behind you right now, and to deal with it directly. It's a good work to apologize and own your mistakes, to really, and I mean really apologize, not just the sort of apology that's like trying to get past it and move on so you don't have to think about it anymore, but when you're, where you're rude or you take your spouse or your roommate or your kids for granted, lash out at them. It's a good work to actively maintain your purity, I used to have a friend who would call me on Fridays sometimes when his housemates were going to be out of town for the weekend. And he would come by my house and leave his computer at my house for the whole weekend when he knew he would be at home alone because he knew he'd be tempted to look at pornography, to objectify people and to hurt himself in the process. That's a good work. He's actively doing this for the glory of God. It's a good work to go to your outwards rhythm. It's a good work to bring someone in need a meal 
to invite a neighbor or someone you know who's lonely to a community group. It's a good work to live out all of our ordinary lives, our home life, our, our work life, our civic responsibilities, all of it, unto the glory of God. Remember, that's the key. Good works are God's works, done by the Spirit through us for the glory of God. Now, we've talked about the foundation of good works, that we are His workmanship, so we just do them. The definition, that they're God's works. And lastly, we need to talk about a gospel understanding of good works. And, really get, and this really gets to the heart of the issue of, of our works. Why do we do them? Why do we do them? It's the issue of motivation. And mo- motivation really matters. Motivation is key. Because some of you may have heard teaching at church before about good works, and it may have sounded similar to what I'm saying right now. It's a pretty common thing traditionally to talk about at church, doing good things. And maybe the message went something like this. You've been saved by God for the purpose of doing good works. It says right here. So go on and get about doing your good works. That's what you're here for. And by the way, don't forget the warning from the book of James. He was the brother of Jesus, after all which says, faith without works is dead. So if you're not doing good works, well, maybe you're actually still dead in your sins. Maybe you're not saved at all. It feels a little bit different, doesn't it? Motivation really matters. And this is the message that is often preached, and there's a severe problem with it. It's often preached, and I know it well, because I experienced and thought in that way for a number of years. And it actually does propel you to do good works, but from a very different motivation. We'll see what that is in a minute. But it's important to recognize it's a lie disguised as the gospel, but which appeals to the motivating forces that are often in our hearts that are not gospel. And those are self-justification and fear as well. It's distorted truth and easily confused with these, these ways that our hearts often tend to go. But it's, it's what we like to do as humans. We like to point to things that we can tangibly identify to show others that we're good, to show ourselves that we're good, and to show that we're respectable people really deserving God's favor after all. Now, I can assure you this isn't the gospel, but a false gospel that we have to deal with and articulate in contrast to the true gospel that Paul's laying out for us here. So in order to make sure we have a firm gospel understanding of this passage, we're going to read Ephesians 2.10, this one verse, from three different perspectives. And I want you to ask yourself, as we do this, which one sounds like me? Which one do I lean towards? Which is my default mode of operating? So three voices, the secular voice, the religious voice, and the gospel voice. Three voices. Now, I doubt you'll fall fully into one camp, There's probably different parts of you that will resonate with different things or different times, but listen closely and listen for the motivations. So Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. First, the secular voice. I'm not God's workmanship. How could I even know if there is a God? And don't, please don't go telling me what my purpose is. It's up to me to find and create my purpose. And I'll do that exactly as I wish. Thank you. I'll find the purpose that frees my inner self to truly be me. 
Why can't you just let me be me and you be you? We'd all get along great if that were the case. And as for good works, I'll decide what works are good and what works are not good for me and that align with my truth. No one else has the right to tell me what they are. I'll figure out the things that make me happy and that don't hurt anyone else. And I'll pursue those things and my life will be just fine. The secular voice. Or maybe, maybe it's a bit more subtle version of that secular voice that has kind of a Christianese mixed in. Listen to this one. Being a Christian works for me. The parts that resonate with me. I like Jesus, you know. He fought against the establishment and served the poor, and those are sort of the sort of good works that I'm into. I like those sort of things. But I don't really buy all the stuff about sin and salvation from sin. I mean, come on. Our society's matured past believing those things, haven't we? Do you hear either of these voices in your heart at times? The temptation to engage your faith or to read scripture in these ways? Or if you're not a person of faith, maybe this is you. I, I spell it out simply to recognize this is a common way of reading this sort of passage and to say that it, it's not the message that Paul is saying in Ephesians 2. Let's move on to the religious voice. There are two moves that the religious person can make, and they're very different, but they're both the religious person. Here's the first. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a pretty good person. I think most people can tell that if they look at my life. I'm kind. I give money to the church. I also give money to the homeless or to the refugees. I don't steal. I don't cheat on my spouse. I try my best with my kids. It's hard, but I try. And I'm okay with God. Just look at all the things I do. I think any reasonable person would be able to see that. Here's the second one. Am I God's workmanship? Am I really saved by grace through faith? It sure doesn't feel like it. I'm really not sure if God's grace actually covers me. I'm pretty rotten. I want it to. I'd love it to. But how could it? I mess things up all the time. My sin is pervasive and habitual. My good works are lacking. I'm not sure how I stand with God. If my faith is dead without works, then I'm pretty worried that it's dead. My good works are hard to find. Maybe I don't even have faith. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. Do either of these voices sound familiar at all? That cause you to point to things you've done to feel better about yourself before God? Or on the other hand, to doubt God because you don't think you've done enough? Okay, finally, a gospel understanding of Ephesians 2. The third way of reading I am God's workmanship. It's true. I am his beloved. I belong to Jesus Christ because I'm saved by grace and by grace alone. Yes, my sin is great. It is. But God's grace is greater. You see, knowing Christ is the greatest gift I have been given and that I can imagine. I've been given real purpose and meaning. I don't have to float around wondering why I'm here. God has graciously marked out good works for me, just for me works that reflect his grace and his truth and love to the world, works that, that bring about abundant life in myself and others. I'm saved from guilt and from pride because I'm saved by grace alone. I'm saved from meaninglessness because I'm saved for good works. Which voices sounded like your own? Maybe different ones at different times. 
Maybe you're leaning towards one or the other. Well, Timothy Keller assesses these voices in this way. I think it's helpful for us. The basic operating principle of religion in the world is, I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. The basic operating principle of the gospel is, I am accepted by God through Christ, therefore I obey. Two people basing their lives on these two different principles sit right beside one another in the church pew or theater seat. Although both strive to obey the law of God, to pray, to give generously, to be a good family member, they do so out of radically different motives and a radically different spirit, resulting in radically different personal character. Religion is the basic default mode of the human heart. Even secular people earn their acceptability and sense of worth by living up to their set of values. The effects of works religion persist so stubbornly in the heart that even Christians who believe the gospel at one level will continually revert to it, operating at deeper levels as if they are saved by their works. Now, Keller explains that living out of these different motivations forms us into people with radically different character. So although you may get the same results of the work itself, who the person is becoming becomes radically different. And again, I can tell you this from personal experience, living in that spirit of religion that thinks I'm not doing enough and I need to do more to earn God's favor. I personally did lots of good things, but what did it leave me feeling and and in a place of? Insecurity, anxiety, fear. That's what comes out. That was the fruit, not the fruit of the Spirit. This is a good test for us whether to know we're acting in accord with the gospel or with something else. What's it forming in us? Take this for example to think about. When a friend opens up to you about sin in their life, how do you respond to them? Maybe they're sleeping around and feel guilty about it, but they aren't sure what to do. Are you quick to be permissive? I don't want to judge. I can't say anything about that. I'm not perfect. I don't live like that, but I'm not going to tell them they're wrong. It's a spirit of irreligion, of the secular voice. Or, or are you quick to take the moral high ground and be the first to correct their behavior? How could you do such a thing? I can't believe you're capable of that. You need to figure your life out and fast. It's a spirit of religion that focuses first on the action, on the behavior, without acknowledging that behavior change without deep encounters with grace never lasts. Or... Are you grieved by the sin in a way that moves you to enter in, to understand, to offer the good news of the gospel right at the, right at the, at the wound? That in Christ, the good news is that by grace through faith, you are accepted, you are loved. And it's sitting in that truth with, with, with your friend over and over that the power of grace does its work, that it births new life. It's the power of grace over and over again, hearing that good news over and over again that softens the heart and frees one to fall into the arms of Jesus. That's what faith is. It's just following into, falling into the arms of Jesus. See, the problem with religious, the religious views of works is that it uses works to justify oneself instead of grace. It's saying, I'm saved by, by works instead of grace. Yet there's no standard of good works that can ever save. The one who's proud of their works and thinks they're pretty good overestimates their goodness. 
And the one who feels that their works are never enough doesn't understand that their goodness has actually nothing to do with receiving God's grace. God saves by grace, not works. The, the religious view of works moves us to comparing ourselves with others. The gospel frees us to celebrate with others. The religious view moves us to pride on the one hand or fear on the other, but the gospel moves us to a confident humility in Christ. It frees us to stand upon him as the ground for our salvation and his grace. We live into the good works because in doing so, we get to walk with Jesus. We are walking with him. We are abiding with him as we do, who is the one who saved us by his grace, the one who loved us when we were unlovable, who was there to catch us when we were there to fall, when we were falling down. So the good news here is that Jesus catches us at our lowest. He catches us when we were dead in our sins. But he loves us enough that he doesn't just leave us there. No, he takes us. He saves us by grace and he, and he sits us on his throne with him. He exalts us up to the heavenly places. That's the good news. And then he gives us a life of purpose and meaning. He carves us out something for us to live into, to proactively have each and every one of our days to say, I can do this and I can do that. And it, it gives our lives purpose and meaning because we're participating in the very works of God in the world. They're not our own, but they're God's works.